we're going to do 30 minutes of practice together sitting or standing or if you need to lie down and with just some light guidance and awareness of the cold and <laughs> We give ourselves some time to settle and land into the posture, make adjustments as we need. Finding some comfort, some stability on the breath or the body, whatever is suitable. In the last day of a retreat, the mind can start to get busy, thinking ahead, planning, understand that this is very natural and we let the mind do its thing in the background and see what would be an appropriate stabilizing object for the foreground Cultivating this inclusive awareness.
What is the mind being aware of right now? How does it feel? Can we bring tenderness and friendliness to whatever we are attending to? Can we give things space? seeking to be both grounded and open.
and we can bring some appreciation to the energy that we have put in our practice these days acknowledging and appreciating that which we have done the efforts the good intentions the care really allowing ourselves to appreciate that and appreciating the presence of others whether on the screen on zoom or in the hall at Gaia house the way that we support each other with our practice appreciating that as well appreciating the place, the house, the nature and all the conditions that have supported us also if we are at home all the conditions that have supported us in this retreat appreciating that
and lastly appreciating the teachings and the practice themselves. So maybe we can take a minute to move the body before sitting again for our final reflections. Okay, so um, I'd like to begin this closing session by doing a very, very quick kind of recap of what we've seen. Of course, the purpose is not that we remember all that, uh, to kind of memorize, but um, sometimes the recap at the end can help make some connections. You're like, oh yeah, it, there was this and uh, there was that. And so we started with 
some reflections on mindfulness generally and the field of the body. It's this anchoring with this inclusive attention. It's the metaphor of the boat or the field where the cows are roaming and grazing. And we saw the field of tonalities or feeling tone. Just getting a sense of how experiences feel pleasant or unpleasant or neither to us. Because a lot of our reactivity and our patterns kind of begin there. And we saw this idea that there's an underlying tendency to relate towards pleasant with greed or attachment or clinging, wanting more, and to what is unpleasant with rejection, aversion, what is neutral with distraction, ignorance, not being interested. And we also saw the field of mind, of how are we relating to things, how are we observing the presence or absence of compulsive reactivity in its many forms. Whether that shows up in thought or in moods, in a climate, and just how we're being aware. And we also saw a little bit of the five hindrances and the seven awakening factors. The five hindrances, sensory craving, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, doubt. And the seven awakening factors, which I would like to call that mindfulness premium. It's the extended version. It mindfulness and that investigation, energy or enthusiasm, joy, tranquility, collectedness, equanimity, or balance. And we offered some reflections as well on perception, how we give meaning to things, sometimes unconsciously, and how that affects feeling tone, it affects mind states and thoughts and moods. And some reflections on grasping and non-grasping to people, to feelings, to places. And some reflections on insight last night. There's other mindfulnesses we didn't cover. I'm not going to go through them. But um, as always, we try to offer what we think is valuable and you know, fits the container of the retreat, but there's always more. And at the end of each exercise in the Satipatthana Sutta, there is a refrain which sort of sets out different ways of practicing each of these fields of mindfulness or each of these exercises in awareness, kind of options where we could apply it. And one bit says, so one contemplates the body or feeling tone, and mind and dharmas internally, or one contemplates the body feeling tones, the mind, dharmas, externally. Or one contemplates the body, feeling tones, the mind and dharmas, both internally and externally. And in a way we're now moving into 
that mode of practice that is a bit more externally or both internally and externally. Whereas perhaps during the retreat we've emphasized a bit the internally. And what does this mean? So it means that in the same way that we can be aware of, let's say, our anger, we can also learn to be sensitive and aware of other people's anger and other people's feelings and their embodied presence. So we're aware of these things and they show up in us and in others. They're not so individual or personal. They show up in us, they show up in others. They, there's also collective versions of them. Collective versions of reactivity and anger and craving, etc. So on the one hand, we are particular individuals with our, our own particular uh, circumstances and idiosyncrasies. And we're aware of those, so that we have particular forms of reactivity or grasping, etc. And at the same time, we're not always that original. So that there is something in human experience which is shared. And it's thanks to that that it makes sense for us to be speaking at all. Because we can relate to other people's experience. Because at some level, let's say grasping is grasping. And it works in particular ways. And many of those are common to many people. So we can become more sensitive and aware of those in general. As they show up in ourselves, as they show up in others. And so we can also understand others more and as they show up in relationship. So that is, we could call this interpersonal mindfulness. And we've used some of the examples in the talks of you know, interactions with others or conversations with others. And in one way, that is a different modality of mindfulness when we're interacting with others, when we have, you know, when we engage in activities, in projects, when we work, when we go shopping. These are all different modalities of mindfulness. So the practice is not over now. It just changes modality. And in another way, it's, it's the same. There are sounds and sights and thoughts and they have certain feeling tones and we react to them and we relate to them and we cultivate some of those. So... On the one hand, it's different. On the other hand, it's the same. So it may look quite different now as we go home, but it's still the path of mindfulness. It's still... One of my teachers used to say at the end of a retreat, the retreat is over. Meditation is not over. And that, that was kind of... Always say that at the end of a retreat is still kind of imprinted on my mind. So as we go home, we go to those familiar places. And it seems to me sometimes that our patterns are like the posters and pictures we have hanging on our walls or the, the comfortable pair of slippers waiting for us next to the door. Uh, this kind of, we just, it's so easy to just slip into them and just... And on the one hand, we have to be aware that that is fairly normal so that we cannot expect 
that it will be the same when we go back home than here. The conditions are different, so the result will be different. And at the same time, maybe we can think, I've done some things differently here. I bet I could maybe keep those changes. It was quite nice to eat in silence. Maybe I can do that a couple of times a week. Or I haven't looked at my phone, because you haven't looked at your phone. So maybe I could have phone-free evenings or mornings or, you know, just um, deliberately as we go back, we're, we're now in a better position than we will be maybe in two weeks. You know, it's still very fresh. So it's a time to consider making changes and aware, of course, that we can make small changes and, and, and be consistent rather than saying, oh, now everything's going to be different and I'm going to be a completely different person. Probably not. And yet gradually there is transformation. Sometimes um, what happens is a part of our mind, our naughty mind, kind of wants to get out of retreat and kind of do all those things we haven't been able to when there's a bit of a um, an opposite movement, you know, so we go out and we go directly to McDonald's or something like this. It's Maybe not the greatest idea, but also not to judge ourselves if, if there's a little bit of kind of backlash, kind of. And say, well, okay, but we don't stay there, you know, so maybe going home is quite an interesting journey. There's a lot of change and we have to be, we have to be really friendly to ourselves. It's a lot, it's a big change, and we're quite sensitive after a retreat. So, so just to allow um, anything that happens and trust that we go back to the center and we recover the balance. Not to, to, to be aware of kind of self-demands that we will be like this, we will be like that, and not to become rigid, but to keep being friendly to ourselves. And also to note that other people have not been on retreat. And sometimes we go, we go back and we expect, because we have been working on this or that, and we have been so aware of being kind and friendly, obviously others should too. And then we go, oh, how unmindful are these people? But they have not been on retreat. Maybe they don't want to. But we are, we have. So the practice is here. As soon as we start thinking how others should be practicing and should be behaving, that, that becomes something quite different from practice. That just becomes a lot of reactivity. At the same time, other people can be a real support. And I feel something that we must really emphasize nowadays is community, which is usually called Sangha, which just means community, or um, I think it's called guild in, in English, like when you have a trade of a certain skills, that, that word was also applied to that. And so to cultivate spiritual friendships, and if you don't have uh, a sangha or a community, 
um, to look if there's anyone in your where you live who practices and make contact. And I think it's really an, a great support to have someone, even if they don't do exactly the same type of practice, uh, but someone who's also on the path with whom you can share resources and questions and difficulties and insights and support each other. So I think that's important. More than expecting uh, someone who will agree with us, it's more how can we mutually support each other on our paths. So I want to finish my reflection with this quote uh, from a sutta that speaks about another type of mindfulness based on this concept of what's called good friendship, or spiritual friends. And it's the Buddha talking to Nandiya, who is from the village where the Buddha grew up. And the Buddha says to Nandiya, you should recollect your good friends in this way. I'm fortunate, so very fortunate, to have good friends who advise and instruct me out of kindness and compassion. In this way, you should establish mindfulness internally on the basis of good friends. So, this retreat for people at home, for people here, have come to an end. When I used to be a nun in Korea, we would sit three months at a time. And then, on his last talk, the son master would say, if you're not awakened, you cannot leave. Everybody would sit there, yes, yes, yes. And then as soon as he's back, as soon as he was somewhere else, everybody would leave, <laughs> awakened or not. <laughs> but to remind ourselves that we come here, as I mean, you could say, to incubate the practice, to remind ourselves of our value, to take the time. And recently I had a quote, I heard a quote about patience. Patience is a quality which makes us go out of instrumental time, where everything has to be done very fast and calibrated, and off we go. And so I think this is one quality 
it seems to me we have manifested here during this retreat. Patience in the queue, patience in the sitting, patience in the walking. In all kind of way, we've cultivated patience without us actually speaking about it. And so can we bring this quality of patience with us? And this is a little difficult because here we went at a certain rhythm with a, within a really supportive and safe environment. And the world out there in the train, on the road, in the bus, often goes at kind of like kind of a faster speed. And in a way, how can we still keep the patience within a little bit of speeding up? And then, as Bernard was pointing out, can we have an alternative? Sometimes we need to go fast, but sometimes we don't need to. And I think what I would hope you take in your daily life is this flexibility, is this multi-choice, that at times you can go faster, but at times you can enjoy patience, going maybe at a slower pace. And this is something I would really recommend when we are in daily life, to recognize what is it in a way that stresses me out? What is it that seems to raise my nervous system, which then generally makes me more reactive? Certain things we cannot change. But one of the things we can do, if possible, is can I do less? Can I do less thing? I mean, it's true some people here might have all the time in the world, and some others is like, how much can I fit in in a day? How much can I fit in a week, in a month, in a year? And then reminding ourselves, why do I want to fit so many things? Can I take things, one thing at a time? Can I see what fits? Also, can I see my limits? To me, this is something which is so important in terms of our daily life, that the mindfulness shows us our limits. Limits of energy, limits of what we can do at any given time, and so really kind of trying to bring what I've been talking about, this creative, wise, compassionate engagement in whatever situation we find ourselves. And one quality which I am fairly sure you experience and you cultivated here, we talked at the beginning, generosity. Can I be generous to myself, but can I be generous to others? And here I don't mean actually financially. I mean generous in our attitude, 
giving ourselves and others time and space. So that we kind of, we're going to go back home and something might be easier. And then something will happen and then we fall into reactivity again. And it's like, oh, why am I back here? <laughs> and the thing to see is we cannot avoid it because of inner condition meeting outer conditions. And sometimes we have surprises, good surprises, difficult surprises. And so in a way, can we be generous? Sometimes it takes time for grief. Sometimes it takes time for understanding. But also being generous to others. That they can change, the gift of change. But it might take time. They might need space. So really kind of reminding ourselves of generosity. And then I wanted to say, if you think about what we call practice in daily life. And so to look at formal practice and informal practice. So often people, they leave a retreat, especially if it's their first retreat, and they go back home and they wonder, how can I continue with this formal sitting? But it can be formal sitting, walking, lying down, or standing. So you have to see what posture might be best for you. And then often they think, oh, I need to get up, maybe at 6 o'clock in the morning, and sit at least for 30 minutes. I would not recommend it if it does not suit your lifestyle, you know? You don't have to get up early to meditate. <laughs> I mean, uh, Stephen and myself, we generally meditate after breakfast, and we don't necessarily get up too early, kind of eight o'clock. Between eight and nine, we have breakfast. <laughs> we are kind of not retired, but thinking, why should we get up early? if you don't need to. This is a bit the thing. I mean, we have different conditions. Some people, unfortunately, have to get up early. And so, again, what's there is no best time. You can sit in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. You can meditate lying down at night. This is what I do a lot, lying down meditation at night, kind of just being aware of the breath. So in terms of to see that meditating, for example, sitting, possibly every day, possibly a little break at the weekend, again, you have to see how does it fit with your life and see what makes sense. But why would we do sitting meditation, for example, to actually stop? Because we have such an identification with moving, acting, I exist. It's not I exist because I think, I exist because I move, because I do something, because I activate myself. So when we have this identity. But, and so it can be nice to kind of remind ourselves 
we can just be, we can just stop. And then the meditation would be a way to experience stopping, what I would call pausing. And then just be there, then 10, 20, 30 or more, that whatever suits you. And what you do in the meditation again, whatever suits you, there is no specific recipe. And then to remember the other posture, that sometimes you might want to do walking meditation or lying down or standing meditation. This is very important. And then, as Bernard pointed out, one wonderful way to sit formally is actually with others. And this nowadays can be done online. I mean, for example, Gaia House has a Dharma Hall online when you have some sitting, some talk, some discussion. I think now it's three times a week. But also, you have many different things you can find of sitting with others. Of course, if you can sit with others in real life, this is also very nice. But again, that depends where you live, where you are. And so kind of really, kind of that stopping together. Because also the formal meditation is reminding ourselves of our value. What is important to me? And also to remember that in daily life, we might not have the same calm, the same clarity as here. But it doesn't mean because our meditation seems a little lighter that we are not meditating. Because we're still sitting, we're still anchoring a little bit on the breath, we're still being aware of change to whatever we can do. But then to see this is not the end of the practice. The practice is also, that's what's wonderful about mindfulness practice, is you can take it in everything we do. So the way we listen, the way we work, the way we drive, I do a lot of meditation when I drive, the way I stand in the queue in the supermarket, the way I garden, this is something I have to be extremely careful about, and that's where, in a way, the, the factors are interesting. Because recently, I mean, during COVID time, lots of time to garden, and then I got lumbago. Then after that, I got lumbago several times, and then you can't move. It's quite difficult. And then the last retreat I did, two days before I did the retreat, I, again, I had lumbago, but I managed. And this time, I was really fine. I arrived fine, I stay fine, I'm living fine with my back. Why was that? Because I gardened, but not too much. So in a way, I listened to the body which says, be careful. So I still garden and do different things in the garden, but I am very careful with balance, equanimity. Sometimes we're taken over by work and then we forget about mindfulness of the body, caring for the body. So this can be a really good practice, actually in daily life, caring for the body or caring for our emotions, 
or caring for our mind? And in a way, what is it that helps? And another thing is the fact that we can just be mindful in a general way. So in daily life, it's not that I am mindful of the breath or mindful of a specific sensation, unless there is a sensation. But more can I bring to my day this generalized awareness, which what is important is not as much the mindfulness as it's a caring and careful mindfulness. So I bring this kind of connection, feeling connected to the world, and having in a way this caring and careful mindfulness in terms of myself, in terms of others. And then what is interesting is when do I lose it? Like me in the Alpol shop. So noticing when you lose it is as interesting as when you have it, this caring and careful mindfulness. And to me, this is something which is so, such a part of the practice in daily life is change. You know, suddenly the tonality change or the mind change or there is a change in the body and being interested, hmm, how does it feel? How long is it going to last? How can I creatively engage with that change? How can I recognize that change? So that, what I would suggest in your daily life, and the last one, a pause if you're working at lunchtime. Use lunch as a way not, if you can not to work with your sandwich, but stop and really be mindful of the food you eat. And if you can do a little walking meditation, if it's possible. I had a few years back, Stephen and I had this young man, very bright, wonderful young man, wonderful friend, who came to film us for a course at home. And then we had breakfast, we had lunch, we had dinner. And after three days of this, he said, do you always do this? We said, what? Oh, you have breakfast, you have lunch, you have dinner. You stop for all these things. I thought, what do you do? <laughs> well, I don't have lunch. I kind of graze. And so it was very interesting that for us it was obvious that we would have a pause. You know, each time we eat, we eat together and we have a pause. And it was very interesting that, oh, and kind of him considering, hmm, he was not so sure he would do it. <laughs> so anyway, again, something I would recommend. So I will stop here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.